You're listening to Coach Talk, a podcast about coaching for improvement in health and social care. Here you will meet several international experts and coaches to discuss challenges, opportunities, models and tools that might be useful when you coach others to make improvements. My name is Annette Nilsson and uh, I have the opportunity to be in Taipei and have a meeting with Frank Federico. Frank, you are the Vice President and Senior Safety Expert at IHI, Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Boston. Hello. Hello, Frank. I'm really curious to this dialogue around patient safety because you have been working with this a lot. But would you first of all start to give us an introduction who you are? How would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, thank you. You've given my title and my responsibilities at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm a pharmacist by training, and I've been involved in patient safety since the very beginning, where in the United States we had several serious medical errors, medication errors, in which patients died and turned into the beginning of our safety movement in the United States, patient safety. So I'm talking about over 20 years of work in this area. And uh, the journey has been long, and we continue to learn how to progress even more and more. Mm. You've been working in many countries? Uh, part of my work at IHI is to lead our, what we call large scale improvement work that is working with large organizations to improve care, uh, just about around the world. Um, yeah. I've been able to work in the Middle East, in many countries in Europe, uh, work here in the Far East where we are now, and of course the United States, Latin America, we are also doing a lot of work. Yeah. So you say you've been working a journey, long journey over 20 years. What's in your mind now from all this learning? Because I know you are a re reflecting person. So what's your learning you think around? Um, I like to think that we constantly are learning more and more about how to change systems and how to improve. And when we first started this work, we were focusing primarily on the engineering processes, make the processes better. Even the IHI campaigns in the beginning focused primarily on six interventions. What we've learned over time is that, yes, that is extremely important, but, and we also need to fix the culture. And by that, I mean the behaviors, the values, because just fixing a process doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be sustainable or achieve the results that we want. The example I give you is uh, individuals who study Toyota will go to Toyota, and when I ask why is it that very few have replicated what Toyota has done, most of it is because the people who go there look for the tools, but don't look for the culture change that was part of Toyota's transformation to become what it is. And in healthcare, everybody wants the tools. Show me the trigger tool, show me the bundles, show me how to change this process. And they forget the importance of changing people's values and behaviors in a way that supports that kind of work. So in summary, it's a combination of, yes, we need the technical aspects and we need the cultural aspects to change. Mm, that's really interesting. But uh, how do you do that? Because coaching, Methods and tools is quite simple, I would say. You have these instructions, you do like this, and it's very, yeah, you yeah, can that, really go for that. That's a very but good question. culture, how do you really coach that? Yeah, that's a very good question because I think we built an industry around fixing with tools 
And what we're learning more and more is we need to start working with the behaviors at the highest levels of the organization. That is, the leaders have to start because if the leaders don't change their behaviors, nothing else will change. And there are certain things that leaders can do. And mind you, uh, when we talk about the role of leaders, leaders are very smart people. They didn't get to be leaders without being smart, but they haven't learned how to lead improvement and what their role is in leading improvement and how to affect the culture and change that, which means we have to stop and reflect. If you have a culture now that is not innovative, that doesn't want to take risks, and then you want to move to a culture of continuous improvement, that transition takes time. However, you have to create the environment to be psychologically safe, to create the environment where people are transparent, where people are learning from each other, people are communicating as a team. And that's the soft side of the change that has to happen. And that's probably the more challenging side that has to happen. However, with some focused interventions that we can offer leaders, such as humility, taking the lead, admitting that they don't know all the answers, encouraging people to speak up, supporting those who are doing improvement work and recognizing them and giving them the opportunity to do the right things. And most importantly, stamp out the behaviors that blame people. We know that many of the errors, much of the harm that occurs is systems related. And leaders have to take that role that this isn't about performance management. This is about learning how to improve and constantly encourage the culture to improve. So if you should describe an excellent behavior for a safe system, uh, if you should run to a, to a microsystem, what would you like to see where you would say, I really could see there was a safe culture you could have your because you can observe from your inner checklist and your inner landscape. What behavior would we need in a microsystem? That's a very good question because we talk about the macro, we really touch on the meso, not enough. And when I say leaders, I mean leaders at all level of the organization and also people who don't have titles of leaders but who are influential in change. And we do what we call diagnostics at IHI where organizations invite us in and we want to go to the place where people do work because that's where you really see the culture. And things that you see in that culture are people showing respect for each other, how they greet each other, how they work as a team. So for example, we went to one area where they were having multidisciplinary rounds and it was very evident that everybody was being treated equally with respect and contributed. And then we visited another ward in the same hospital where you could tell that the person in charge was the person in charge and no one got a chance to speak up. So clearly within one hospital, there were two cultures on the two different wards. The way they display their data, the way they talk about how when they identify a problem, they go after it to solve it. Um, and it's just behaviors and language that there are no specific questions that you ask. You just have to observe. You observe how people act and interact. I was in one hospital that the group that was there, any ward I went to visit, they acted so much as a team. They finished each other's sentences in a good way. It wasn't they were cutting each other off, but you could tell they were proud of each other, they were helpful for each other, and they were supporting each other in ways that you just don't normally see in an environment where people are afraid, where people don't respect each other. Hmm. I think about when we look at uh, big mistakes in the world, when really bad things has happened, uh, it often come up that, well, actually people know 
it wasn't safe. People had said there were signals, but no one listening and, and so on. Do you think uh, a lot of people in the microsystem, they are aware, but they are closed into that system? So, or what's your thoughts around that? Or are we not aware? So, so there are a couple of issues. One is that, you know, as you say, when you are so involved in the microsystem, sometimes you don't even see that the microsystem is not working. And what we do is we put systems in place and people develop workarounds, but we never say, well, if you had to develop a workaround, that means the system we put in place wasn't good because you had to find a different way to do it. And when you, that happens, those should be signals to people to understand that the system is not working the way it was designed. So we need to rethink the system. The other part is when there are things that are going wrong, there isn't anyone listening. That is, people who can make and, and lead that change aren't allowing the people to fix it, aren't allowing the people to say, what's wrong here? How can we fix it? Until something bad happens. And then they'll say, well, why didn't you tell us? Well, because we didn't create the environment for people to speak up. And it, it's just the matter of how leaders approach people. When uh, leaders do executive walkarounds and they go to the microsystem, do they hear the real concerns that people have by asking open-ended questions? Or do they just want the people to tell them everything's going fine and they want to walk away? Leaders are afraid to do walk-arounds because they're afraid of what they're going to find. A true leader will go there with the open mind of saying, what's going on here? What's getting in your way from doing the work? Now, the challenge is that we don't expect the leaders to have all the answers or take away every responsibility to fix those problems. It's that collaborative effort of what can the leader do to open the doors to allow the people at the microsystem to make the change. Mm. I think it's really interesting. Uh, I work in Sweden now with Patient Compact. The whole Sweden is trying to really support a partnership between patient and caregivers. And uh, we come up with a few questions who could help you to do your baseline. And what team over Sweden in different regions say is, actually, we thought we were working person-centered. We thought we already do this. But when we asked the question, we could see, actually, we are not working so involving the patients. And, and we don't really know our next step and how we work together as a team. So we also do simulations. We have put up our ESTA simulation, non-technical tools, uh, how you can train in that. And we see that in the conversation, there is a lot of how we interact with patients and families and with colleagues and over uh, into other steps, next step for the patient in another organization and so on. We, we still have these unsafe areas there. What's your thought around involving and really have partnership with the patients? And how has this, if you look back 20 years and today, what, what, are there some difference or are we in the same state? What's your thought? Yeah. So I think we need to remember that the reason we do our work is because we're doing it for the patient. We're there to provide good patient care. And recently we were in Salzburg coming up with some guiding principles for measurement. And it was so evident that the principles should always be based on patient outcomes and what patients feel are the right outcomes, not what we always believe are the right outcomes because that doesn't always match. And what patients see as errors or patients see as inefficiencies in the system, we tend to gloss over, but yet for patients, that's significant. 
There was, and again, in all fairness, there was a time when the healthcare system was paternalistic. That is, they knew what they do. They were at different training levels. Uh, the population was, in a way, accepting that the two smartest people in the village might be the clergy and the doctor, and they accepted that. But we are at a different point in time now where patients want to be in control of their own health care. People want to participate in making decisions about what they need to do. And for many, it's uh, many clinicians and healthcare workers, it creates a little bit of stress because they're afraid of what might that look like? Am, am I giving up control to the patient? Am I now going to have to do things that patients really want to do and we don't think is right? But there's a balance because one is we need to hear what's important to the patient because we are doing healthcare, we are providing services, we're providing medications, we're providing things that sometimes exceed what the patient wants or what matters to the patient. And I give the example of my mother who had congestive heart failure. When she went to see the congestive heart failure specialist, he sat her down, sat next to her, took her hand and said, tell me what you like to do. And when my mom explained what she liked to do, he looked at me and said, we could do a lot of things for her, but right now, let's just make her comfortable to do these things that she loves to do. So that participatory thing doesn't mean that a clinician can't use his or her clinical judgment to make it work. It just means that you use it at the right level to be able to provide the kind of support and care that the patient really needs. More importantly, it's not about just engaging them in their own care, but it's sometimes we do things in healthcare that the patients ask, why do you do it that way? Why don't you do it in a different way? And just getting the patient involved in quality improvement projects has been enlightening for many people because we tend to look at it with the lens that we have. But when a patient is in the room with us, we have a whole different lens of looking at how we do processes and how we design care, how we design different buildings. There's an example at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston where they designed these beautiful doors to enter the clinic. But what they didn't realize is that the doors were excessively heavy and the patients started complaining that these are cancer patients, weak, they don't have the strength to open those doors. And what they did is they complained and now they had to retrofit all the doors and change them. Whereas if they had engaged patients at the very beginning, they would have had a much better design to begin with. There's also the engagement of patients in leadership. That is in the state of Massachusetts, where I come from, it is mandatory that there be a patient and family advisory council in every hospital where patients are part of decision processes. They're part of influencing how the care is designed and things like that. So much so that at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, patients interviewed the candidates for the chief operating position of the hospital. They were yeah. part of that decision process. It wasn't just the hospital staff yeah. who did the interviewing. So we need to think through what's important to the patient, how do we design systems, and how do we measure the success of our work from the patient's eyes? not just our eyes yeah. as healthcare providers. Yeah. And I think we, it's really important with all this to be humble for that. We are not so trained in that in healthcare. Uh, there is a lot of feedback and confirmation when you do things for others and you feel, oh, today was a good day. I got so much feedback from the patients. Thank you for doing this for me. And what should I do without you and so on and to really sit on your hands and ask uh, the questions and see what can you do for yourself to really increase people to take 
take um, what you say benefit for their own resources mm -hmm. and support them and to, to really build that way of meeting I think we have a long journey because it's a lot of small details it comes up with in every single meeting. And I would say that remember why we got into healthcare. We got into healthcare to help patients. Mm. And the more we engage with them, the more they give mm. us feedback about the care that we're giving mm. them, the more it rewards us because that's what we want to do is we want to help mm. them. So I agree with you that positive reinforcement that comes. And remember, patients are sick people. There was a professor that I had when I was, I'm a pharmacist by training, when I was at the College of Pharmacy, and of all the professors, there was only one who reminded us that when the patient came to the pharmacy to get medications, we should always remember that it's a patient who may have a disease, who may be in pain, who may be suffering from something, and we needed to be kind to that person and respect that because that's why they're coming. They need our help, and we need to be able to help them. Yeah. So thank you, Frank. I think this has been a really interesting dialogue. Do you have some thoughts for the future and to the coaches who listen to this? What would you say if you should say, this is something I really want to, to give from my heart to you? What, what would you say? Um, yes, I, I think that you know, we talk about behaviors, we talk about um, how important it is to change the culture. Um, I think we need to think of the future. What is healthcare going to look like? There are going to be more and more elderly people. There are going to be fewer younger people to care for the patients. Uh, care is going to get more complex because as they get older, there are more diseases that they have, more comorbidities. We're going to have a lot more technology. I think we need to not complicate it too much, but continue to remember how to simplify it. That is, I'm not saying you know simplify it to the sense that it doesn't make sense, but we tend to add a lot of complexity instead of thinking through what's the best and easiest way to help patients and to help ourselves do our jobs well. And rather than making it so complicated that we can't do our job, how do we find the best way that meets the needs of the patient and the needs of the staff? Because we have to be there to deliver that care. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. My pleasure. This podcast is made by Kulturum Design and Learning Center in Sweden.